we ask for the empowerment of your spirit for us to walk in that. We are believers. There's someone here that's not a believer today that they would be, by the Spirit's power, awakened to spiritual things, spiritual truths, that they would see the glorious gospel on display, the horrendous condition that they find themselves in apart from it, and the power that it demonstrates for all who believe. Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever had an overwhelming desire for something? Maybe you had like this educational goal and you wanted to be like first in your class. Maybe you said something like, I want to graduate from college or get my master's. And it became consuming, all consuming. Some of you maybe had a relationship goal. I want to get married. I want to get married or I will not be happy. Then it moved to, I want to be a father or a mother. Or, I want to have grandchildren. And this overwhelming desire dominated your life. Maybe it was a geographical goal. I want to visit this state or that state or all of the United States. Not too long ago, Anna and I kind of got into a debate over who had been to the most states. And so I went on Google and found this thing where I could like click all the states I'd been to. Then we did it for her and I was like, I beat you by two. I mean, it's so then she starts calling her dad and is like, dad, did we pass through this state? I think I'm missing one, you know. Or maybe it's a particular place. I'm going to use Anna again. As a child, she dreamed of living in Texas. Born in Florida, longing for Texas all of her life. And uh, finally she met a man from Texas. But she also had another dream. She always wanted to live in a border city where she could take a step over and be in one state and step back and be in the other. And she met me and she was like, I have to marry this guy. You know, not really. But there's all kinds of things where we are, we have these like what one author called over desires or all consuming desires. We long so much for them. Uh, You see that even again, like in maybe you could say someone puts a big emphasis on the place they need to sleep at night. Or someone has this desire to get in a a certain place in their career. Or they want a certain amount of money or freedom or position or security. It's just like these desires that they have, you might say, man, you're mentioning things that are not that bad. I mean, they're not bad things. They really, in some ways, you would say these are American dream type things. But if you backed up and you did travel the world, you would find out that many people around the world have their own set of dreams, longings, desires. But what happens is those desires can become all-consuming desires. And we think that if we get those things, that we'll be satisfied. Oh, my heart will be satisfied. I can now die because I've experienced this particular thing. 
It has been the treasure that I've dreamed of all my life. And if I can just grasp it and hold on to it, then boy, will I be satisfied and happy. The reality is we were created to develop relationships, to learn, to enjoy this earth, to work, to, to have a home. I mean, all the, those are things God created us to, to, to experience uh, and to, to enjoy. There are so many of those things. It's something that's common to all image bearers. But the first question I asked was, have you ever had an all-consuming desire for something an inordinate desire for something. Have you ever been anxious about this thing? Have you ever lost sleep over it? Do you find it, get, it hard to get it off your mind? Will you punish yourself or others to ensure that you get it? Will you neglect more important things for it? Have you ever been willing to sin to get this thing? Do you sin when you don't get it? Whenever that's happening, you have elevated things to godlike status. Those things are your savior. They're your functional savior. What we are talking about today is how humanity abandons God as the satisfier, as the hope, as the one that has brought peace, as our security. How humanity abandons God as the one that truly can give us what we're longing for in in the real way. And then we have attached ourselves to created things that we run after. But the reality is, you know what they are? It's one of those things like, and it's hard to believe this, understand it, but they are mirages, you know, a mirage. And these, as we run after them, these, they're a mirage in a way where you're running after it, pursuing it. It looks so beautiful. You get it and then it doesn't satisfy. And so you look up and you find another one and you get it. And if you live your whole life that way, it will destroy you and likely everyone around you. That, that's really kind of what we're saying about the condition that humans are in. The unbelieving world is in. But the danger is, even as a believer, we still have these struggles along the way. Now, why does Paul start talking about this? That's something you have to think about. Why, why is he talking about this right now. Well, I want you to look back to Romans 1, 16 and 17, and we're going to deal with it, jump into uh, Romans 1, 18 through 32, but just look at 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. So people are looking for salvation, security, hope, joy, whatever. The gospel is the power of God for true salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is preaching this gospel because he knows of the, the total ruin that humanity finds themselves in. That's his message he's preaching. So he says, one, the gospel is the power, 
It's the power to save. Salvation does not come as a result of man. Man doesn't save himself. God must save man. The story throughout the Old and New Testament is that God has come to save. That is the only hope they have. Whether it was Israel in a battle or whether it's, it's seeing Jesus presented to us all along the way. It's like man in and of himself will only fail. He will never get to God on his own. The gospel is the power. Without the gospel there is no power and there is no salvation. Second thing we see here is... The way you enter into that saving power of the gospel is by faith. Faith is the channel. Third thing you see is the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. What Paul is going to present is humanity is unrighteous. And God is righteous. And so in order for humanity to be righteous or right with God, God has to do something because humanity left to themselves will never, ever be right. Jesus did not come because we could make ourselves right. He came because we were unright and are unable of making ourselves right. So the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And the only way you can be right with God is to be a recipient of the righteousness of God. That's what the gospel says. So, keep on moving here. As you're moving through the rest of 118 through 320, you will see this section saying, humanity is not righteous, so therefore the righteousness of God must come to them. They must experience that. It is an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of them that is to be received by faith. That's the whole argument. If you, if you can't see that, you've not read this well. Paul will spend 118 through 320 showing us why we need God to give us righteousness. Why we cannot earn His righteousness, deserve or attain it ourselves. It will present us with a dark picture of humanity, yet it is the backdrop upon which the bright jewel of the gospel shines all the brighter. That's what it's doing. That's what he's doing. He is like an attorney laying out for you a case. And he is saying, humanity needs the righteousness of God because they can't make themselves right. And then he says, I'm going to prove it to you. And that's what he's going to do. If you miss that, you miss the gospel, you miss hope, you miss salvation, you miss everything. Because you have to see the darkness before you can see the light. And Paul knows that. And that fourth thing just to kind of keep in your mind when we're looking at this text is that these Gentile pagan people that he emphasizes here, that is the whole world that's not Jewish, are under God's wrath presently. And that's another thing, like sometimes when people talk about God's wrath, they think future and not present. Here, it is the present that we're faced with. Now, why are these people under God's wrath presently? Why? Because they reject Him as Creator. And instead, they worship the creation 
which results in them being given over to their lust and passions. That's kind of basically what happens in this text. So as Christians, we should instead glory in our Creator. We should recognize in our own lives the idols that grip our hearts. We should know that but for the grace of God, we are under His wrath. This should lead us to reach out with people, to others with the gospel. And then the last thing I would say is, this is also a reminder that when we look at our own selves, we know that our hope, over and over to a believer, our hope is not in our righteousness, but rather God's righteousness given to us, that we are recipients of. Hopefully that's clear enough. You ready? One eighteen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Again, God's wrath is now. God's wrath upon humanity is now because of their ungodliness and their unrighteousness. Ungodliness emphasizes your relationship, your vertical relationship with God. Uh, uh, and and ungod, I mean, um, I'm sorry, the ungodliness is the vertical. The unrighteousness, I think you would say, is the horizontal. One in relationship to God, the other in relationship to man. It's at the very heart of our condition and the struggles that we face. You know, people have heard that in the past, they would speak of God giving us two books. You might say, hold on just a second. There's just the Bible. There's just the Bible. You know, one is, they would argue, the book of creation. And the other one is the Bible. One is this general revelation, creation, in, in, in the sense of just when you think of it that way. And the other one is a special revelation, the Bible. The general revelation that is received is of much lesser kind of value, you might say, than this, the special revelation, in that in order for you to fully understand the fullness that God has for us to understand, you, you must have that special revelation, the Bible. But God has also given us this general revelation which opens our eyes to many things about him. And so I've heard people describe it in that way, and I think that's maybe a helpful way. Like I said, theologians would often say general revelation and special revelation just to make some kind of distinction for us. Now, when we look at his general revelation, and this is important in Paul's argument, the Gentile people had not received the word of God the Jews had. So these Gentile people, without the knowledge of the Bible are able to see or get, grasp the, a knowledge of a creator, someone who's made it. In the same way with you, when you look out there and you see a painting, you say there must be a painter. When you see a building, you would say there must be a builder. When you see a book, you might say, oh, there must be an author. And what we need to do is understand that God is displaying his power and his divine nature through his creation, he's displaying that. You walk outside, you can see that there is a God, and what humanity does is what? They suppress it. They press it down. They want to silence the voice of creation. 
That's what Psalm 19 says. It speaks of it in that way. It's like a personification, like they're out declaring. The heavens declare. They're speaking. It's a way that they... And so the heavens are like speaking out. Their voice is going out for you to listen and see. There is this divine creator who is all-powerful, who has built and created a world. And they're suppressing that. But here's the thing. Did you know you're a worshiper no matter what you do with the God who displays himself? You're still worshiping. You find things to worship. You long for uh, something to worship, to trust in, to rely upon, to hope in, to, to exalt. You're always looking for that. And so God's wrath is revealed because they've rejected him as their creator and instead they worshiped his creation. Look at 21 through 23. For although they knew God, that is, he is on display in his created world. Although they knew him, they do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They're not going to say, say I want to praise him. I want to thank Him for what He's done. Instead, in their foolish hearts, they're darkened. It's, it's, a, it's a way, they're cloudy. They're unable to see. They're blind to the things that are very clearly before them. Something that is open to all of humanity, they are blind to that. They claim to be wise, though. They're like, boy, I'm so smart. I can see clearly. I understand everything. And they fabricate all of these stories in their minds, these narratives about how the world is and all those things, rather than seeing a clear-cut picture of a God who has created and sustains this world. They claim to be wise, but they are fools. And what do they do? What do these foolish foolish, worldly, pagan people do. They start taking the creation. Are y'all with me? They take the created things and they exalt them to God-like status in their lives. You remember when I said, what would you sin to get and sin when you don't get? What is the source of your frustration in your life? What is that? It's when you have taken something created, person, some particular thing in this world, and you exalt it to God-like status, it's going to give me hope, happiness, joy, satisfaction, and the list goes on. You have built it up to the status of God. You've taken oftentimes a good thing and turned it into a God thing. And you know what ends up happening? It's a really bad thing in your life. We're going to worship something. So you either worship the true God or you create, fabricate false saviors. God's wrath is revealed against sinful humanity because they've rejected their creator and instead uh, worship the creation. Resulting in, this is how God's wrath 
flows out here, resulting in them giving over, get, being given over to their lust and passions. I want you to look at verse 24, 26, and 28. God gave them up. You know, sometimes you say somebody's doing, man, they're doing good. They are doing good. What are we saying? Their lives just seem to be going great. What are you saying? And even sometimes among Christian people, they're experiencing the blessing of God. Or did you see what they had? Or did you see where they went? Or whatever it might be. God gave them up, it says. Now, what does God give them over to? What they want most. You see that? What they long for most, they get. You you ready for this? Their prayers are answered. (laughs) Their selfish, self-indulging prayers are all answered. You say, you mean like Christian prayer? I'm saying people are praying that are not Christians out there. And what they want most, they're praying for. And you might say, well, who are they praying to? Whatever God they fabricated that they think will give them what they're looking for. So God, allowing these people to go their own way, is revealing that they are under his wrath. And they're getting all that they ever wanted. Their highest goals, their greatest longing the detriment of their soul. This is why the church is encouraged to, in this way, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires But whoever does the will of God abides forever. One author said, this is the wrath of God, presently, let's say, to give us what we want too much. To give us over to the pursuit of the things that we have put in place of Him. The worst thing God can do to human beings in the present is to let them reach their idolatrous goals. His judgment is to give us over to the destructive power of idolatry and of evil. When we sin, it sets us, uh, it sets up stresses and strains in the fabric of the order that God created. Instead of us finding blessing, our sin causes breakdown spiritually, psychologically, socially, and physically. God gave them over. But don't they look blessed? That's a little bit shocking. That's a hard message. Why this is so hard is that we think, oh, well, whenever God is, or when we think of blessing so often, it is tied to the physical. And so when we think of the blessing of God, kind of, you might say, it's tied to the physical. So the world creates, the world rejects the creator. They begin to make their own gods. They, they ask of these gods, give us what we long for. 
These gods, in a sense, God letting them do what they want, these gods give them what they want, and it turns them into monsters. I mean, is that how you see this text? Or... They are given over to what they want the most. Notice what happens. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They have unholy lust. They long to do evil. They are given over to that. And they continue in their rebellion. Their lust that they, they have, their natural impulses in, in a corrupted, fallen world ends up leading to unnatural things. Immoral things. Verse 26 and 27, God gave them up. To dishonorable passions for women exchanged natural relations for those who contrary to nature. Men did the same. Committing shameful acts. Receiving the due penalty of their error. Unnatural desires. Listen. The created world has order. You and I understand that when you walk outside or in, let's say, early spring and you see all of these animals like preparing themselves, getting ready for, uh, not children, but for these baby animals to be born. There's this whole process going on and you go out there and you kind of maybe you'll see a bird nest and then you'll see the eggs and then you'll see the hatching of the eggs and then you'll see that kind of repeat itself. There's order. There's order in the natural world. And what you see here is that when people reject God, they begin to run after these passions, these unchecked passions, and they run into complete and absolute rebellion against God. They live in a disorderly way. Homosexuality would lead, if everyone was to run after those kinds of passions, it would lead... To ultimately the whole human race being lost. You realize that? It, it is a culture destroyer. It is destroying people. It's destroying the whole fabric of the culture, the whole concept of procreation, the whole concept of being fruitful, multiplying, and filling the earth. All of that is turned upside down. All of that is lost. It's a, it's a rejection of the natural order of things. It is shameful in the eyes of God. It is immoral. It is ungodly. It's, an, it's a rejection of God. It leads to chaos, to destructive behavior. Now, how does the church deal with that? I, mean, I, I really think the church usually chooses two things, one of two things, and, and I think um, both of them are dangerous. One is the church gives into the culture and tries to find a way to get past the reality that something like this that we see going on around us in our culture and actually being celebrated is, is they try to say, well, maybe God's word says something different than that, that it's a corruption of the design. That's way one, one way that the church has responded. 
Another one way is to say, well, that sin's the biggest sin, and so we hate those people that are struggling in that sin. Both of those are wrong. The Apostle Paul doesn't see it that way. The Apostle Paul, when he is looking at this text and thinking about it, what is he saying? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Has the power to save. What kind of people? All kinds of people. Messed up people. People that are dominated by desires that are damnable. So that the church then says we see this great mission field. It's not a battlefield. We are longing to see people that have been drawn into the, the, the pagan uh, worship of this age. We long to see them come to the true and living God. Now, you might say, are you sure Paul thinks that way? I, I am sure. It's very clear here. But it's also important to say that that's not the only sin that Paul thinks is important to mention. He highlights that sin because in a very powerful way it demonstrates how creation is turned upside down to total corruption. It's a very powerful way to see that because you say what was natural is now totally unnatural. But, but notice what else is unnatural. Notice what else is a broken, a picture of total abandonment of God. It says, and since they did not uh, see fit to acknowledge God, gave, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And look at this list. When you look at this list, if you sit there and go, huh, I've never struggled with that. I'm going to be like, you're a liar. You know, like, okay, but you just lied to me. You are so self-deceived, you can't even see that. You're as blind as the fallen world. You're in a state of total, like, just inability to see anything about yourself if you say that. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They have like clouded mind, a worthless mind, a mind filled with poor judgment. This list of things here, if you're to work them out and think through them, you have economic disorder, greed, social disorder, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, family breakdown, they're disobedient to parents, relational breakdown, they're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is a picture of the total depravity of humanity. It's almost like you could say, that like, and Anna and I kind of go back and forth on this, but it's almost like when we think about our lives and you're looking at something like this list, 
Not everything we do is completely sinful, but nothing we do can be untouched by sin. And that's kind of what you walk away from. You're like, come on, man. But then you're like, well, Jared, isn't Paul presenting this about the ungodly world? I'm saying yes, but what I'm saying to you as a believer is when you look at this list, nobody walks out of here arrogant. Nobody walks out of here proud of themselves. Nobody walks out of here and says, oh, yeah, I don't demonstrate any of those things. Those idols never touch me. Verse 32, it's almost like within the conscience of of, of people, they know that things are wrong. That's why so many people deal with guilt, just hovers over them, and shame. Ultimately, Paul says they know they deserve to die. Now, here's the thing. Some of you might say homosexuals, they deserve to die. Disobedient children don't. It's not how Paul says it. It's just not. Because Paul sees that humanity in a state of rejecting God, when you're there, which is how we come into this world, when we are there, we are in such a state that we deserve to die. That's what we say. The wages of sin is death. And the reality is we are sympathetic to some sins and not to others. That's why a mom can say, well, she just kind of got a little out of hand. And then say, burn that one at the stake. God's wrath is revealed against sinful humanity because they reject their creator and instead worship the creation, resulting in them being given over to their lust and passions, which is not only offense to God, but it's destructive to all of humanity. So as Christians, what should we do? One is seek to glory in our creator. Be amazed at the opportunity we have to image him in this world. Two, remember that you're not ever going to escape having a tendency towards idolatry. It's always like creeping at the door. It's like you're always kind of battling with that. It's almost like you're constantly trying to, the clutches of idolatry, you're trying to throw those off so that you might truly worship God fully. Third, for the believer, but for the grace of God, you would be under God's wrath still. You know what I think God does with the believer? Instead of saying to you, you're under God's wrath again, oh, you're not no more. You're under God's wrath again, oh, you're not no more. You're under God's wrath again, oh, you're not anymore. The believer... The righteousness of Christ has come over you. You're sealed in Him. So for the believer, I think it's God would come as a father does to his child, and He certainly disciplines you. 
But it's not because you are now his enemy, because you're his son. So as a believer, we keep going back to the gospel, being reminded of that. And I think it would remind us that, you know what? Our righteousness is not the hope we have. It's Christ's righteousness. Now, the last thing to think about is this. What does this mean for the world? Well, it means for you and me that we, like Paul, should say, I'm under obligation. I'm eager. I'm not ashamed to carry the gospel. Because it's the only hope for me and it's only hope for you and for the world. That's the message we preach. Not, I hate the sins of the world. Let them be damned. That's not God's heart. God says, I hate the sin. But I came to save sinners. Like you and like all those out there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this scripture. We thank you for how so beautifully you show us that the salvation we need is not us saving ourselves, but the righteousness of God coming to us. We all can identify with the things that we see today. May we as believers keep watching our own hearts and at the same time looking out into the world to see how we might reach out to those who are perishing. In Christ's name, amen. If you would stand with me.